Welcome to Orthodox.Faith. This is John Harmon. And this is Ron Bentley. In the last episode, we introduced the problem of evil as the problem of accounting for evil in a world created by a good God. Right. If God is good and powerful and fully informed, why does God allow evil to exist? Yep. We spent some time, Ron, distinguishing moral evil from natural evil. Yeah. That, that is the evil that we humans are responsible for versus the bad things that are beyond our control, right. like natural disasters and disease. We observed that evil is both irrational and random. We can't expect to find a rational answer for what is ultimately irrational. Right. And we concluded with part of a Christian answer— that is, God would not allow evil to exist unless God was so powerful and so good that God could bring good even out of evil. Yeah, and in this episode, we'll proceed a little bit deeper into what we mean when we talk about good and evil. We'll notice that there's an odd asymmetry between good and evil that helps us mm. a little bit when we're trying to identify what evil is. And just as we did last time, we will conclude by checking ourselves with Scripture. We're going to take a look yes. at a specific instance where Jesus' disciples essentially confront him with precisely this question, why did this bad thing happen? Right. Before we dive into that, though, it's worth taking a quick look at something the prophet Isaiah said okay. in chapter 5 of the book of Isaiah, which is fairly early in that book. Right. We get a song or even a poetic parable of sorts where Isaiah compares Israel to a vineyard, specifically God's vineyard. And God, as the owner and tender of the vineyard, lavished great care on it, doing everything right for a productive harvest to come, only to find that the vineyard doesn't yield good grapes, but rather only bad grapes. Okay. The vineyard then would have to be destroyed. What follows is a series of woes. Woe to those who take so much that nothing is left for others. Woe to those who deceive and exploit and so on. Part of this cycle of woes highlights the bitterness of the bad grapes as an underlying cynicism that doubts God's work in the world and claims that real right and wrong are better determined by them rather than by God. Okay. So the result is a is a twisting of values where righteousness is condemned while the wicked are pronounced innocent and drunkenness is better than sobriety debauchery is more valued than courage in that passage and so on they mock god and in an effort to justify their behavior they attempt to demonstrate that their evil is good their darkness is light their bitterness is sweet and in the midst of this, God says through Isaiah, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. It would seem that according to Isaiah, it's fairly important that we get good and evil straight. <laughs> yeah, right. Rebellion against God and against God's order results in this reversal that he talks about in chapter 5. It's very important to God that what is good is called good, and what is evil is called evil. If it is important to God that what is good gets called good, then maybe it's worthwhile for us to start with that relevant question. 
what is good after all. And if you've ever taken an introductory ethics class, you will know how perplexing this question can get, uh, at least when it's a matter of secular ethicists, studiously avoiding any reference to a theological foundation <laughs> and trying to find an answer everyone else can agree on. In fact, I'd almost say it's one of the defining characteristics of the modern world that we do our best to muddle forward in a context where it's almost impossible to get any agreement on the question of what is ultimately good, or even if there is an ultimate good at all. Mm -hmm. We may agree on fairly simple, immediate things. It's better to be well-fed than starving, for instance, but we have virtually no agreement on any ultimate good. Ron, you and I have talked about this yeah. and at, at one level. The Christian answer is simple. Good is what God intends. Yep. And if we think about it for a moment, if God is the creator of the entire universe around us, and if God looked at it all and called it good, then what God intended for this creation is what is good. That applies to me as an individual as well, to each of us. Whatever God originally intended for me is what is good. It's simple, right? <laughs> and, yet, <laughs> and yet hardly so simple. Uh, this isn't nearly as helpful as we'd like when it comes to specific cases, we ourselves can be quick to pronounce on what we think God intended. And uh, I think most of us have encountered situations where others pronounced what God intended. And we were absolutely certain that it was neither good nor what God intended. <laughs> so good might be what God intended, but we sure seem to be severely handicapped when it comes to knowing what God intended. It's often much harder than we'd like to determine what God intends or wants, but it's enough for our purposes right now. I will say that it's enough for what we need to accomplish right now. That good is ultimately what God intends, however hard it might be for us to figure that out. Hmm. Yeah. Good is what God intends. I could certainly see Christians accepting that. Right. But Ron, are you suggesting that this is maybe also the the answer we offer to non-Christians? Are, are, aren't, the, aren't these the ones who pose the problem of evil precisely because they doubt God really exists as Christians describe him? Isn't it a common objection that given the evil that we know exists, can God really be the God whom Christians affirm is simultaneously good, all-powerful, and all-knowing? Good point. So it's worth pointing out that insofar as the problem of evil is an argument against God as Christians describe God, and we will have a little bit more on that in the next episode, you do have to allow for the sake of the argument that God does exist as Christians describe God, and then see, is there an account of the world that explains how evil exists, even though God is just as Christians describe him? But point taken, it's worth asking, is there any other account of good that we might offer that gives us a rough understanding of what it is, but also is more accessible to non-Christians? And there I'd say that we can say good is roughly what is good for human beings, but this is only, and I emphasize, roughly true. And, and that's for several reasons. First, Christians can only agree that good is what is good for human beings, roughly speaking, as long as we're very clear that what's good for humans, this just goes back to what we just said, is what God intended for us. In other words, when I say good is roughly what is good for human beings, I'm just saying good 
for us human beings is good precisely because God, our creator, intended us to be good when he created us. But it's problematic for another reason, just to say that good is roughly what is good for humans. Remember, we just said that it's hard enough for Christians to figure out what it is that God intends in many cases, especially when we start talking about specific cases. And likewise, there are lots of cases where it's hard to decide what's good for human beings. Uh, Mm. This is especially true when we're weighing competing interests, although I do have to admit that the mere existence of competing interests could potentially be due to evil. As an aside, I would like to say that this second answer about what is good, that it's roughly what's good for humans, points to a much larger problem. We Christians have the greatest commandment in two parts. First, love God. Second, love others. We can often find agreement from others, from non-Christians on the second part of that, the importance of loving others. They like that. They want us to do that. We encounter lots more problems getting agreement on loving God. Mm, And there we're, we're back to that futility of finding agreement on an ultimate good outside the context Christians get in their account of who God is and what God is doing in the world. Okay, but with that original Christian account then in place, Mm -hmm. good is what God intends. Right. We might have a way to approach what evil is. Seems so. Yeah, it seems fairly clear that evil is a reduction of good. Right. Evil takes away what is good. It turns something that looks like what God intended into something that is not what God intended intended. Fair enough? Yeah, that's exactly right. And up to this point, we've actually been following sort of an argument that was advanced by Augustine of Hippo. You knew I was going to go back to the fathers (laughs) at some point. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Augustine of Hippo in the fifth century, so we're talking the early 400s, had written a book that's sometimes called Augustine's Catechism. It's his Enchiridion or a handbook for new Christians. Uh, Kind of funny because a handbook for new Christians at the time is something It gets studied by serious theologians these days. Uh, Augustine offers a specific example here of distinguishing good and evil. And for what it's worth, John, he explicitly has that Isaiah 5 passage that you went through. He he has that in view. Excellent. He doesn't (laughs) want to mistake good for bad or bad for good. And so he asks what we mean by the phrase a bad man. And he parses it out this way. He says, insofar as a man is a man, insofar as this human being is created by God, existing as God intended, then that person is good. Insofar as that person is not what God intended, then he is bad. So the human being as God intended is always good. The human being reduced by evil is now less than God intended. And only then do we talk in terms of a bad human being. Again, keep in mind, we're trying to be clear about what's good and what's bad. As God created, it's good. When it's reduced by evil, it's bad. Augustine's driving metaphor here is corruption. So good milk spoils, good iron turns into rust. Hmm. And Insofar as a thing becomes less than what it was supposed to be, we're looking at the operation of evil. Hmm. Uh, Ron, I read somewhere recently something that went like this. Sin is not content to live alongside of righteousness any more than disease will coexist with health. 
that right there is exactly what Augustine was after. That was precisely how he was doing, trying to deal with evil in this particular case. The result of all this is a curious asymmetry between good and evil. And Augustine notes this explicitly. Good can exist without evil, but evil can't exist without good. Evil is always the parasite. It's always moving something away from existing as God intended towards not existing as God intended and ultimately towards not existing at all. Now, I'm not suggesting that Augustine's answers would necessarily satisfy modern day ethicists, but then I think I've already (laughs) observed that I'm not entirely (laughs) satisfied with modern day ethicists' attempt to (laughs) sort out what good is, so I'm not going to take their objections to Augustine as decisive. In any case, John, you're not going to believe this, but I had this precise argument with somebody on a Minecraft server of all places. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, the place to go for your theological debates, right? Of course, of course. (laughs) I, I did play for a while on a public Minecraft server where there was a subset of the players who derived most of the pleasure from tearing down what other players built. In Mm. fact, we'd frequently classify players along those lines. You had your builders and then, well, you had your destroyers or your fighters, or we call them PVPers, the player versus player fighters there. Mm. It may not have been my proudest moment, although I have to admit (laughs) it was a lot of fun. When I took one of these destroying players to task on the public forum that was associated with the server. And early on, there seemed to be some disagreement on just who exactly here was the bad guy. And I dealt with it in a way that I thought was fairly decisive when I pointed out that good creates and evil destroys. So I was among those who created and he was among those who merely destroyed. I could be perfectly content without him and he couldn't have fun without me. QED, go look in the mirror, ask yourself where the evil lies. <laughs> There's nothing like trotting out your Augustine in a public dispute about ethics on a public forum for a public Minecraft server to remind you, this is what my education was for. Augustine plays Minecraft. Well, <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I'm i glad to see you putting that education to such good use. Um, any way that we are other than God intended us to be, is bad then. I get how that applies when we're talking about moral evil, as we've described it in the last episode. The evil that depends on the actions that we take and the decisions that we make as humans. When I behave in a way God did not intend, then I am clearly siding with evil. Does that apply also to natural evil? Does it apply to a disease, for example? Yeah, and this is where it gets a tad sensitive, but that's absolutely the case. Insofar as a disease, for instance, takes away capabilities that God intended us as human beings to have, it is in fact an evil. So yes, natural evil, just like moral evil, can drag us in a direction away from what God intended. The, what makes it natural evil is that it does that through no fault of our own. It just, uh, it's, it's something that, that we can't avoid. As an aside here, And John, you've heard me say this before in this sense, death is very close to the ultimate evil. Death takes a human being as God intended them and reduces them to nothing. 
it is the final reduction of all that is good in a human being. And from this perspective, as far as I'm concerned, the phrase death is a part of life simply does not work. Death mm -hmm. is the opposite of life. It destroys life and it is completely evil. It's no accident that the Christian story revolves around resurrection and the ultimate defeat of death. I remember that you've made that point elsewhere on the podcast. Mm -hmm. I think in particular in our series on resurrection from 1 Corinthians 15, right? Yeah, absolutely. You develop that in more detail there and in what is probably the best context yeah. to have a, a large part of that discussion. We're going to repeat this chorus more than once in this episode because it's so important to the theological discussion. Good is what God intended. Right. Evil cannot exist without good, and it always tries to take good away, right. to move things away from what God intended. With that at least sorted out, it's worth repeating the possible Christian response we gave in the last episode for why evil could exist. God would not allow evil to exist unless God was so good and so powerful that God could bring good even out of evil. I just want to observe that that raises some really sticky questions. We won't get the chance to explore those in as much depth as I'd like, but just consider this. Are we saying that there are even better things God might bring about because evil exists? Are we saying that there are good things God couldn't create or couldn't make happen without evil? Both of those seem to me to be a little bit problematic, but in some cases, it certainly does seem that Christians and Christians who have thought long and hard about it have tried to insist exactly that. Sticky indeed, mm -hmm. I should say. Yeah, stepping back though, we noticed last time that these answers are rarely as satisfying as we'd like. Yeah. All we have to do is think about specific and especially horrific instances of evil. Right. And these answers get harder and harder to swallow. Yeah. You might say it's the right answer, but it hardly helps. <laughs> so yeah. In the next episode, we're, we're going to place this question in a larger context and try to expand on the answer of why evil exists at all. Yeah. But for now, though, let's, let's do what we promised and turn our attention to a case where Jesus' disciples confronted him with exactly this question. Why this evil? Yes, why this specific case? So turning to Scripture, in the ninth chapter of the Gospel of John, mm -hmm. Jesus and his disciples are confronted with a man who was born blind. Right. As the story plays, Jesus will do what we all know he's going to do. Right. He'll heal the man. Right. <laughs> and in John... That introduces a whole new set of problems as the Jewish leadership object to Jesus healing him on the Sabbath. Even the man's parents disassociate <laughs> from him right. as the investigation on the part of the Jewish leadership proceeds. Incidentally, it's the, it's the man who was blind in this story who gives us the phrase, I once was blind, but now I see, which yes. It turns up in that very familiar hymn, Amazing Grace, right? Yep. What's most interesting to us right now is how that particular story started. 
when they first encountered the man, the disciples asked Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And just notice how that question is essentially, Jesus, why did this bad thing right here happen? Hmm. Now, John, this fascinates me. Set aside that the disciples didn't go first to seeing about getting the man healed. <laughs> right. They looked at what we would call a natural evil, and they immediately assumed it's the result of a moral evil. You said some things on this about this on the past about the mindset that lies behind this. What's what's going on in this encounter? Yeah, in in that setting, the popular belief was to connect any physical disability with punishment. Okay, if you had some physical challenge, someone must have sinned to earn it. Okay, and 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 that thinking was rampant. Okay, so. The disciples' question is natural, and, and it's not at all out of place okay. in the context where we find it. If someone was blind since birth, it's it's a little hard to set the blame on them, right? So right. maybe it was his parents, and the man's blindness was judgment on them. But in their system of belief, a person doesn't just have blindness. It has to have a moral cause. The dots had to connect. Why would God be against this man to allow his affliction if the dots didn't connect, if there wasn't some moral cause? And John, can I ask, only because we talked in the last episode about Job, did I hear you say then that this was the perspective of at least one of the folks that interacted with Job there? Exactly. This kind of thinking is age old okay? because people just couldn't leave those dots unconnected. And yes, in fact, in Job, that is the, that is the perspective of actually more than one character in the story who say, give it up, Job. You may as well admit what, whatever you did, you may as well confess it. Just give it up. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Because this isn't going to get any better for you until you come clean. Right. But, but of course, as we read in John nine, Jesus blasts this idea completely out of the water. Yeah. His his response is what's even more fascinating, I think, than the question. Jesus says, this happened, quote, so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. I guess the question then comes, how does this fit into what we've been saying about good and evil up to this point? It sure seems to me that we can observe first that the blindness is not ultimately what God intended for this particular man. It it was an evil in that sense. Second, God uses it to do something good. In this case, it serves as one of the signs of who Jesus is. And in this case, it's the occasion for Jesus to say very shortly afterwards, I am the light of the world. Hmm. I'll admit that I'm uncomfortable in this case saying that God made the man blind so that he could later make him see and have that Mm -hmm. good come out of it. When Jesus says this happened so that the work of God might be displayed, I take that to mean that confronted with this particular evil, the good God intends to bring of it is to restore the man to what he was intended to be and to reveal the power of God in Jesus Christ at the very same time. It also turns out, in this case, to be a moment of decision for everyone around, the man, the Jewish leadership, the parents, as they all accept or reject the implication here of who Jesus is. That's the real point here, isn't it? This story points to who Jesus is. He is God incarnate, 
the one who has command over nature, the power to heal, the absolute reign over creation, and compassion for creation that brings glory to God in a world racked with evil of every kind, so that this world might be redeemed and restored through him. Good comes from this man's life, at the very least, in that Jesus is revealed here to the people as Messiah and God, and God's intentions to restore creation are accomplished in yet one more way, maybe a small way in the bigger picture, but a very large way for the man born blind. In the story of the man born blind, there is no doubt that we're confronted with an evil. Jesus acknowledges that. But when his disciples pushed him to say, is this a moral evil? Is someone, is another person at fault for this? Jesus doesn't go that far. And we get that enigmatic statement that this was done so that the power of God could be revealed. And then yeah. as I read it, at least two good things come out of it. One, the man gets healed, but two, precisely as Jesus said, the power of God's revealed. And in the context of the gospel of John, that means that we find out who Jesus is. Now, John, I couldn't help but notice how thoroughly Trinitarian your interpretation of this was. <laughs> I just want you to know how much I appreciate that. Uh, Ron, as we as the clock ticks and we uh, begin to think about, okay, how do we wrap this up? We started by observing that it's important to God that we get straight what good and e- evil are. Right. Right. What is good and what is evil? We need to have that straight. So before we plunged into an answer to the problem of evil, we stopped in this episode to sort out what good and evil are. Right. But we we didn't go very far. No, we, not really. We we simply observed that good is what God intends and evil frustrates or destroys that good. Simple enough. Yeah. Yeah. Not hard to sort out in specific cases, but simple <laughs> enough, right? Right, right. I, I mean, this is hardly a complete answer. Right. But it's enough for us to notice something important about how good and evil are actually different. Good and evil do not represent two opposed but equally powerful forces at war with each other forever. Yeah, right. There is an asymmetry about them, as you said. Good can exist without evil, but evil cannot exist at all without something good to corrupt and destroy. In the next episode, we are, in fact, going to plunge into a potential answer to the problem of evil. We'll take a closer look at how that question is formulated, why it matters, and then we'll consider what's sometimes been called the free will defense. But that's it for this episode. For more information about this podcast and our other activities, please do visit our website at orthodox.faith. That's O-R-T-H-O-D-O-C-S dot F-A-I-T-H. And thank you for listening.